Uh, the, script, the scripture today is from Genesis um, 8, 13 through 22, and then 9, 1, 3 through 17. In the 601st year, in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried off, were dried from off the earth. And Noah removed the covering of the ark, and he looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. Then God said to Noah, Go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals, creeping things that creep on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out, and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing, and every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by families from the ark. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord, and he took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intentions of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. And God blessed Noah and his sons, and he said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from man. For his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you, be fruitful and multiply. Increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark. It is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I made between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the clouds and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. And when I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant and I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. Amen. Thank you, Vicki. Uh, good morning. My name is Drew Bennett. I'm one of the pastors here at Church of the Redeemer. So good to be able to celebrate uh, this morning with all of you. Uh, so thanks for coming. Uh, five years, it's hard to imagine. Uh, it doesn't feel like, in one sense, it doesn't feel like it's been that long, and in, in another sense, I can't remember life before we started this church. So, um, But it's, it's a neat time for, for me personally and for all of us, so thank you. Uh, we are in the middle of a sermon series uh, this fall that's going to last just about a year, maybe a little bit more. 
We're calling it the story of God as we kind of work our way slowly through the Old Testament scriptures. And the sermon series is called The Story of God because we believe that these Old Testament scriptures that we're reading from are more than just a group of stories that provide moral lessons for our lives. We believe that the entire Old Testament itself from beginning to end is telling one master story or what, what postmodern thinkers would call a meta-narrative, uh, which is an overarching story that we all share, which... Um, allows for their, well, it's an overarching story we all share within which our personal stories are unfolding. And of course, postmodernism claims that there's no such thing. Postmodern thinkers don't believe in ultimate reality, and therefore there's no objective story or that is a source of meaning for our lives. But if there's no transcendent story, then there's no transcendent purpose, and truth and reality itself are entirely subjective. And Moses is writing these stories here at the beginning of Genesis to the nation of Israel on the brink of their entrance into the promised land to provide them with what the postmodern thinkers say it is impossible to have, to give them a master story of reality that would help them make sense of their life and the mission God had called them to. And the story goes something like this. God created the world and everything in it good. He created man and put him in the world to rule over the creation as his image bearer, but the man was not content with his place under God's authority. He rebelled against the Lord God. He sinned, siding with the evil serpent against the one who had created him, and in his rebellion he brought death and curse into the world so that all that was once good and right is now corrupt. And when God saw how man's sin had corrupted the earth, he decided to intervene in an act of judgment sending a great flood to cleanse the earth we saw last week. And then, through Noah and his family, God begins here a great restoration project, what we would describe as a new creation. And that really is, in many ways, the categories within which we understand the Christian worldview, the Christian meta-narrative. Creation, fall, God created all things good, Man messed it up through his sin and rebellion, and now God has come to intervene to bring things uh, back to the way that he intended them to be in the beginning. Creation, fall, redemption, or recreation. So the flood story here that we looked at last week and then again this week is not just a story about divine judgment. That's what we talked about last week. It is also a story about new beginnings. It's a story about recreation. One of the commentators I read this week said it this way. that He said, it's as if God is a director, and he says, okay, once again from the top. That's really what's happening here. And I'll show you how that works itself out in the text. But there are four things that I want us to look at together from this, from this passage about what, what we're going to describe as God's recreation, his reconstitution of the earth under Noah and his family and their headship as the images of God in the earth. Four things about this work of redemption or recreation that, that begin to get worked out here in these, te- in, the, in these verses. First, I want you to see the scope of it. Uh, that it really does extend way out, and I want you to see how far out it extends. Secondly, I want you to see the instruments of it. Thirdly, the obstacles those instruments face in their work of, of joining God in this, in this recreation of the earth. And then lastly, we have to end where we usually end, and that is the source of strength for the instruments to overcome those obstacles. So the scope, the instruments, the obstacles, and the source, okay? And then I'm going to do this as quickly as we can because we have communion this morning and then obviously lunch. So just settle in. We're going to be here for a while today, and we hope it's a good thing, not a bad thing for you, because we want to take our time. So let's look at this 
uh, together. First, the scope uh, of God's work in recreating the world. If you would go all the way to Genesis 9, 9, you see that God makes a covenant with Noah and his family and also with the entire creation. So look there at verses 9 and 10. The Lord says, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you and with every living creature that is with you, and then he goes on from there to describe. Now, if you noticed when Vicky was reading, there really are two words that dominate this passage. The first is covenant. God is making a covenant. The second word that it's obvious that dominates the passage is the word earth. God says the earth, the earth, the earth, the earth, the earth. And here we see God entering into a covenant relationship, not only with Noah and his family, did you notice that, but with the creation and even the earth itself to never again destroy the earth as he did in the flood. Now, what's the significance of that? It means that God's purposes in salvation through Jesus Christ extend all the way out even to the creation. The scope of God's salvation is summed up in this little phrase, I am making all things, all things, not some things, not these things, all things new. And of course, the phrase comes from the passage in Revelation 21 that we read as a call to worship. And Revelation 21 and 22 are there because I wanted you to see them this morning. They are the happily ever after, which every other happily ever after is based on. They are the end of the story. They're where the story's headed. The promise of the Bible is that even though sin and death go on, they will not forever. That there will be a day when a new heaven and a new earth come down, and the world we know now, full of corruption and decay, will be no more. The Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 8 says that the creation is groaning to be set free from its bondage to sin and corruption, and we're groaning too. And the promise is that one day God is going to do it. He's going to set us free, and there will be no more curse, no more crying, no more pain, and all of those things. And what the Bible's teaching us is that, is that beginning here in this flood story in Genesis chapter 9, in the story of Noah and his family, which is so familiar to most of us, the Lord God, in making a covenant of salvation with Noah and the animals, is committing himself to reversing the effects of sin and the fall in every sphere of our experience of it all the way out to how the creation itself has been damaged by it. And everything throughout the rest of the Bible, from Genesis 9 onward, is the unfolding of God's purposes in the successive acts of redemptive history to do just that. So Abraham, which we're going to look at in a couple weeks, Isaac and Jacob, and then Moses and the Exodus and the kings of Israel, and then, of course, the coming of Jesus Christ himself into the world, and then the church and the work that the church continues to do Uh, in human history, all of it is the storyline that is headed for the happily ever after. And if you've seen enough romantic comedies, when you're sitting in the movie theater, you know the happily ever after is coming, don't you? You can almost feel it coming. And I would have us sit here this morning and and say, if you you pay attention, what what Genesis 9 all the way to Revelation 21 and 22 does for you is, if you listen carefully... You can, and, and, and be attentive, you can almost feel the happily ever after on the verge of coming. This chapter in Genesis 9 sets the trajectory for all that is coming as we head towards the end. And Revelation 21 and 22 is where we're, we're headed. And what you notice there, if you, if you look carefully and listen as Jeff was reading, is what God is saying there in Revelation 21 and 22 is he's taking us back to the garden. Right? 
Revelation 22 is described, describes heaven as a place where a great river flows out from God's throne, and there beside the river is the tree of life, and the leaves of the tree of life are for the healing of the nations. It's all this garden imagery. But what I want you to see is that the scope of God's salvation, according to, according to those verses there in Revelation 21 and 22, the scope of God's salvation is nothing less than the healing of the entire world. All the brokenness, all the dysfunction, all the corruption of sin being restored and healed. Not holding on until Jesus comes back so that we can escape heaven. In the Bible, salvation means heaven coming down to earth. And that's a big deal. It has huge implications for how you understand what it means to be a Christian. That there's work to do here because the location of what God is ultimately doing is here, see? And I thought about this. Can I, can I issue a challenge uh, to, to the Christians this morning, okay? If you're here, and sometimes I talk to the non-Christians, let me just talk to those of you who call yourself Christians, okay? Who would say, I followed Jesus Christ, you know? Here's what I want to say. God's salvation, according to the Bible, is cosmic. It includes the personal and the individual experience, but it is not limited to those. And yet, the residue of revivalism in American evangelicalism today even is that we have come to think of Christianity only in terms of our individual and personal experience. And it's the reason why there's so much narcissism and so much consumerism in Christian circles and in Christians themselves. And so then the churches develop strategies to appeal to this consumeristic mindset on the part of the people who come uh, and they're, they're trying to reach. And the result is that there's no mission, no sense of calling, no willingness to suffer. People just flit around from one church to another trying to find the right fit to their individual and personal needs and preferences. Or people remain only marginally connected to the church uh, as it fits their schedule or whatever it might be. And what I want to say is, in the Bible, to be, quote-unquote, saved, to be a Christian, means so much more than just that. It means this storyline. There's a story God is making all things new. His kingdom come and will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And when you become a Christian, what happens is the trajectory of your entire life changes. Your values, the reason, the reasons you have for doing things, right? Your, your priorities change, your practices change because you enter your, the story. You get swept up in what God is doing in the world. That's what conversion is. And nothing less than that takes into consideration what this passage says is the scope of what God is doing. God makes a covenant with the creation itself. But secondly, I want you to see, uh, the second thing is that we see not only the scope, but also the instruments God intends to use in his recreation. Noah and his family are the new humanity, replacing Adam and Eve as God's image bearers in the earth. And it could not be more obvious um, from how Moses crafts the text here in Genesis 9 as it relates to Genesis chapter 1. In Genesis 1, you might recall, the Lord God created the world out of the watery chaos. And here in Genesis 8 and 9, he recreates the world by water. In Genesis 1, he calls Adam his image. Here in Genesis 9 verse 6, he calls Noah his image. Adam walks with God in the Garden of Eden, Genesis 3.8. Noah walks with God here, Genesis 2.19, or excuse me, Genesis um, 
Adam rules and has dominion over the animals by naming them. Noah rules and has dominion over the animals by saving them. So to Adam, the Lord God says, be fruitful and multiply. You might remember in here, he says the same exact thing to Noah. Verse 1 of chapter 9, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And so what the writer of these stories is doing is he is intentionally casting Noah and his family as the new Adam, as the new humanity through which God would continue to fill his purposes in the earth. And remember, in the ancient Near Eastern cultures, only the pharaohs and the kings and the emperors were called the images of God. Ancient peoples believed that their kings and their rulers were somewhere between heaven and earth, just one step below heaven, and their job was to discern the will of the gods in heaven and then use whatever political power or authority or resources they might have to to see the purposes and the will of the gods come to pass upon the earth. That is the job of the image bearer. And then Moses turns to the nation of Israel, writing these stories and saying, no, it's not true of kings and emperors only. It's true of every single person. And it's true of every single person in this room that we are all made in God's image. That's Noah's job. It's our job too. And though the fall has marred the image of God in us, in Jesus Christ, we're told, we're being remade into his image And remember, how did he teach us to pray? Our Father, who art in heaven, your name be praised. And then what? Your kingdom come. Your will be done. Where? On the earth. As it is in heaven. So like Adam and like Noah, we were made to rule and have dominion and to be fruitful and productive, to cultivate and to bring order and beauty out of chaos, the way God brought the creation out of the chaos in Genesis 1, 1 and 2. And that's why it feels so good to clean the house or to organize your desk or to write a poem. It's because it's what we've been made for. And so what we see here is there's a principle of election. There's the doctrine of election is beginning to be developed here, that God chooses Noah and his family among all the peoples of the earth. And later he will elect and choose Abraham to be, Abraham and his descendants and his family to be his instruments in bringing forth his purposes in the world through Abraham to bring blessing and salvation to the nations. And then Isaac, not Ishmael, and then Jacob and not Esau. And so this this doctrine of God sovereignly electing a people for himself to be his instruments for salvation in the earth. And what that means for you and I is that God has saved us from sin and death, and hell, but it also means that he has saved us for something. We've been saved unto something, to be set free to participate in God's mission in the world. And if you're here, and you're not a Christian, this is what it means to be a Christian, see? Is that your life gets caught up in something bigger than yourself, that you are called and set apart and reserved by God for a specific purpose in the world. And remember, the physical world matters to God. So let me apply this for a minute. At the end of the world, I hate to break it to you. I hope this doesn't come as bad news to you. But at the end of the world, we will not float up into heaven. We will not leave the material world behind for the immaterial spiritual world. We will live in the new heavens and the new earth. And God's purposes and salvation extend all the way out then to the physical world because the physical world matters to him. That means that meeting people's spiritual needs is very, very important, but so is meeting their physical needs. Therefore, for us, the works of mercy and justice should be important. 
Feeding people who are hungry should be important. Solving the problem of homelessness in our city should be something that we own and, and make a priority. Making sure there are resources for the poor and the needy. To raise them out of poverty. Getting, in, in, getting involved in front lines of social concerns like the schools and after school programs and the Guardian Ad Litem program and so forth. This is the kind of work we've been saved unto. We should be concerned what's happening in our world and whether the laws that are being passed by our leaders are just. We should not be afraid to get involved in the political process. And this is really what this whole bit here in verses 5 and 6 of chapter 9 is about. If you see there, God beginning to talk to Moses, if you shed blood, or to Noah, if you shed blood, then by, you know, your blood will be shed. It's a concern for righteousness and justice. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, Jesus says. Righteousness means, means making sure life is going the way God intends for it to go according to his revealed will in the scriptures to bring about care for the poor and the needy that the strong would not take advantage of the weak, but that they would serve the weak and use their resources to uplift the weak, right? All of these concerns for righteousness. Do righteousness, and then wherever you come across unrighteousness, what you do is you do justice. And justice is just the correction back to righteousness. Right? So this concern for making sure the powerful don't take advantage of the weak and making sure violence just doesn't go crazy in the earth, that we should be concerned for righteousness and peace and mercy and these kinds of things. Now let me apply this even further. Uh, when we sent out invitations for our first worship service in October 2008, as a church. On the invitation, we put, our goal is not a great church, it's a great city. Now, the first step was the, was the effort to plant a church, and we're five years in now, okay? And we've done that. Look around. I mean, God is blessed. Amen, right? It's been amazing in many ways. Okay, and the goal is to multiply churches now that we're five years in, to build a critical mass of people and resources so that we can eventually begin to rally uh, around uh, the, the, the spiritual and physical needs of our city and to go after them and, and our international missionary, par- missionary partnerships and so forth. And so that's, that's where we are, right? Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the great pastor and theologian in, in, in pre-World War II Germany, said the church is only the church when it exists for others. We believe that. I mean, five years later, we still have the same goal to make a visible difference in our city. And somebody might ask, well, what does that mean? And I thought Tim Rice this week... Our pastor, the pastor in Lakeland at our mother church said, well, it may be hard to describe what a visible difference in a city looks like, but you can sure describe what a visible, what a not, you know, no difference in a city looks like. You know, our goal is to make a visible difference. And this passage and the themes we're dealing with this morning lead to the conclusion that we're called to work beyond the walls of the church. In fact, in many ways, the measure of the work we get done in here is the work that gets done out there. And one morning, one morning, and this is just me taking my, my own per, you know, personal privilege, I guess you could say. On our fifth anniversary, as we continue to mature and grow larger, the tendency and the temptation is to focus more and more of your time and energy and staff and programs and all of these things. Focus them internally rather than externally. And I can feel it happening even to us to a certain degree. I mean, in the early days, most of the new people who were new to Redeemer were not from a church background, so they didn't have any expectation. But now we're getting a little older, you know, more mature, so more and more people 
who are new to our church have more of a church background. And what's interesting is they come with a higher level of expectation about the kinds of ministries the church should provide. And it's really easy to add program after program after program because, uh, you know, you feel like you have to. And before you know it, everybody is so busy keeping all of the programs and the ministries of the church running that there's no evangelism happening. There's nothing happening outside of the ministry of the church. I just want to say, pray for us, and let's be diligent. Because we are, Church of the Redeemer is God's intended instrument to see the kingdom of heaven and the will of heaven be done in the city of Winter Haven. That's our goal. Not a great church. Of course a great church. But a great city. Now, so that's the scope of the work of recreation. Our role also as the instruments God intends to use. Uh, And these things give us no choice. We just can't live for ourselves then. We can't live small, selfish lives. The church is only the church when it exists for others. There's a mission and we have to get busy with the mission, but just like every other mission, there are obstacles. And so that's the third point. This is going to be really quickly, really quick. Because I have a couple things in mind, but unfortunately, I'm not really pulling them from the text. Now, don't judge me for that, because let me just make a point. Okay, at least not directly, I'm not. Genesis was written to the nation of Israel on the verge of their entrance into the promised land. God had rescued them from Egypt He had rescued them for the mission, to go into the land, to subdue the nations there, and to bring the kingdom of heaven to earth. But do you remember the story? What's fascinating is some of the the Israelites didn't want anything to do with God's mission. Some of them wanted to go back to Egypt. Do you remember this? And there really were two reasons, if you you, want to boil it down. For some of them, it was just too hard. And for others of them, it was just too scary. So for some, it was they had it pretty good back there. You know, let's go back there. We had food to eat back there, right? So there was a profound laziness or selfishness. Or for others, there was their giants in the land, right? So it's fear. It's a profound fear. Okay, so either it's too hard or it's too scary, and then I get derailed from the mission, and it usually is in a lot of little stuff. Okay, it's in the little moments of your life that this happens. And let me, if you would allow me, just let me give you two snapshots from my life this past week. I'm nervous to do this, so <clears throat> because it just it's just ugly and humbling. Uh, let me give you an illustration of it's just too hard of where my selfishness come to, came to bear upon my my week on my Thursday morning after a pretty bad Wednesday. Uh, I woke up and I had an entire day of meetings ahead of me, and for an introvert, that's really hard. You dread that uh, because introverts love people, but they just love them in small doses. Okay. And when you can look at the calendar and say, gosh, I've got six meetings today, and so I'm going to just go ahead and schedule a nervous breakdown around three in the afternoon. On top of that, my grandmother had a doctor's appointment that she really needed me to take her to. And then there was all this work over here that I uh, wanted to get through, that I knew if I didn't get it done, it was not going to happen, and I really had to get through it. So I was grumpy. And then so I, I took my, my grandmother to the doctor. No offense to the doctors. This was an eye doctor, so I don't know. Anyway, it took us three and a half hours at the doctor's office. And uh, by the time we got out of there, she actually, we were both irritable. Um, but it was just really hard. And I remember this fleeting thought when I, because I was meditating on this passage. I remember the fleeting thought in the morning before I went into the day. You know, this, I thought, 
oh gosh, I'm not looking forward to today, but this is the good work God's doing in my life today, so I should embrace it with joy and trust him. And then immediately in my heart, I said, that's stupid. And I allowed myself to just live grumpy for the rest of the day. (laughs) It's just too hard, right? Selfishness there that you have to fight through. And I remember being in the doctor's office and it was taking a lot longer. And I, I, I would be lying to you if I didn't say the recognition of some of the things I want to talk about in just a minute actually helped. But there really is a sense in which, can you, in a day that's hard, can you, can you embrace the good work that God is doing in your life on that day, or do you just get easily derailed as soon as things get tough? But then there's also this, um, it's just too scary. And it's another thing that's been happening in our, our family's life, um, three weeks ago, we were on a Sunday night, we were sitting in our, in our house, and uh, the kids were kind of taking showers, and we were cleaning up from dinner, and all of a sudden... Literally, there was this, and the whole house kind of shook. And Ashley and I looked at one another like, what in the world was that? And then, then it dawned on us, we have about a 60-year-old oak tree in our front yard, and a third of it came down on top of our house. Uh, and and if, you, if, you kind of, if you're close to our family, you know the story of our family, you know that um, one of the things that we've prayed a lot about, me in particular, my wife really helps me with this actually, is I've really prayed and, and struggled to be content in the house that we live in. And one of the things, uh, and isn't that just gross? Don't you hate that? And yet, um, as we've really struggled with this over the years, one of the things that both of us have, have said is we, we absolutely, we had, when we bought the house, there were three be- beautiful, huge oak trees. Well, one of them came down during Katrina. And now we're two down and one to go now. And literally on the Saturday morning before the Sunday night, my wife was out in the front yard, and she, it was an uncharacteristic thing for her to be able to kind of, I, I was, she was letting me sleep, actually, and she had the kids out, and she was out there, right, oh, God, I love this tree. I'm so grateful that you've given us this tree, and 24 hours later, the tree's on top of the house. And it sounds silly, doesn't it? Uh, that something like that would matter so much. But uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, who's a pastor, who was a pastor in London, talked about, I'm reading his biography, and in the, the story he talked about a house that he lived in as a child uh, that burned down, and it was this really traumatic, huge thing in his life where he came to the realization that here we have no lasting city. And for my family, it's not a house, it's a tree. <laughs> and that sounds silly, doesn't it? But it's been hard, because in moments like that, when you're, when you're hanging on for sheer life, and the thing that you grasp a hold of to say, oh, I can rest my heart in the fact that God has been gracious and generous to me to give me this tree, and then the the very next day the tree comes down. And you want to say, is God really good? Is he really out to do me good? Because sometimes it feels like he's out to take everything that I love away from me. Can I trust him? And there's fear. So both selfishness and fear, and a lot of times a combo of both because they play really well together, actually, will a lot of times cause you to to reduce Christianity to this attempt to be this safe, small life because it's too hard or it's too scary, and I just really can't move forward into what God's calling me to do. So the last thing we need to do then is to talk about how how do we overcome these obstacles of, of selfishness and fear in order to really give ourselves wholeheartedly to the mission that God would call us uh, to in this passage. And the answer is the rainbow. You see the rainbow there? Christian ethics and obedience is always an echo of God's action. We love because he first loved us. 
We show mercy to the weak and the poor because he showed mercy to us. When we were weak and poor, we forgive because he's forgiven us. And so the only way to be committed to God and his mission in the world is to first see how utterly committed he is to you. And that's what the rainbow is all about. God is making a covenant here. Look at verse 9 again. Behold, I establish my covenant with you. And that word covenant is everywhere in verses 9 through 17. But what does it mean? A covenant is a pledge. It is a relationship that is characterized by exclusive love and loyalty and commitment. And here God makes a covenant with Noah and his family and all of the creatures. He promises that he will never again unleash his wrath like he did in the flood, but instead will work to save and heal. He's saying, my disposition has changed. His, his wrath has been quenched. And here he pledges to do whatever it takes to see the earth flourish and to confirm This promise he is making, he puts a covenantal sign in the clouds. Verses 12 through 16, the rainbow. And here's what he said. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. And when I bring the clouds over the earth, and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant. I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature. In other words, God says, every time I'm tempted to get angry and to unleash my wrath and the clouds begin to gather, then the rainbow will come and I'll see it and I'll remember my promise to save and to heal and not to destroy. And every time the storm clouds gather and every time your life is filled with dark providences and you're tempted to doubt my love for you and my commitment to you, then the rainbow will come and you'll see it and you'll remember that I've promised to do it, whatever it takes to save you and not condemn you. See, the sign is the confirmation of his promise. He sees it and remembers and keeps his covenant with us. We see it and we remember and we keep covenant with him. God's saying no more condemnation, no more destruction. That doesn't mean God thinks it's going to go better this time. He knows there will be sin and violence in just a few chapters, just like there was before the flood. But he's saying, I want no more condemnation, no more judgment. I want to save and heal and I'll do whatever it takes to do that. And we're left with the question, how can that be? How can God declare peace when we're still at war? And the covenantal sign shows us how God can do that also, how he's able to make good on this promise. Look there in verse 13. He said, I have set my bow in the cloud. We call it the rainbow. And it has ironically become a symbol of peace and love and inclusion and even been co-opted by the LBGT community as their official logo. But here, the Hebrew word doesn't mean rainbow. It means war bow or battle bow. If you think about it, a rainbow looks like a bow that shoots arrows, doesn't it? So guys, this should make sense to all of you, who the the young guys who do archery stuff. That's the imagery. And the significance of it is this. God's saying, go out, go outside next time there's a rain shower and look at the rainbow in the sky. But ask yourself this question, which way is it pointing? Is the rainbow pointing down toward the earth or up toward heaven? And if the rainbow was pointing down toward the earth, aiming towards us, then we should be afraid. We should be nervous, right? If that's the case, then God's not stopped being a God of judgment and wrath. But look, look at it. God's war bow has, has, been, has been pointed upward away from the earth. It's aimed at something else, somewhere else, someone else. And the Jesus Storybook Bible puts it this way. You really ought to get that if you don't have it. From the Jesus Storybook Bible, it wasn't long after the flood before everything went wrong again, but God wasn't surprised. He knew this would happen. That's why, before the beginning of time, he had another plan, a better plan. A plan not to destroy the world, but to rescue it. A plan 
to one day send his only son, the rescuer. God's strong anger against hate and sadness and death would come down once more, but not on his people or his world. No, God's war bow was not pointing down at his people. It was pointing up into the heart of heaven. Charles Spurgeon put it this way. He said, God has not stopped being a God of judgment. God has not stopped being a God of wrath. God is aiming his wrath somewhere else. The arrows of his wrath are going into someone else. See, you always find a rainbow at the conjunction of the sun and the storm, right at the place where light and darkness meet. You find the promise of God's love and forgiveness at the place where mercy and judgment come together. And where's that? At the cross of Jesus Christ, we see the storm. God is so infinitely holy that he had to punish sin, but he's so infinitely full of mercy and love that he stepped in front of us. He was pierced for our transgressions. Literally, his body was pierced. Jesus' body was pierced with the arrows of God's wrath meant for us. The cross is the conjunction of the storm of God's justice and the son of God's love. Jesus endured the storm of wrath so that we could get the rainbow. And when you see that, then you can't be selfish. God doesn't live for himself. In order to love you and save you and me, he had to enter the mess of our lives. He had to suffer and bleed in order to rescue us. And when that grips our hearts, we won't be shy about whatever challenges and struggles God brings into our life. We won't be afraid to suffer and bleed. See, you won't be afraid either. God's war bow is aimed at his son, not you. It's aimed at his heart. Why? Why is the bow aimed at his heart? Because it's the only way he can love you. And show you that's how committed to you he is. So don't doubt him. Even when trees come crashing down on your house or something much worse than that. Don't doubt his love. Look at the bow. Point it away from you. But let me ask this question, and I need to be done. Where are you struggling? Where are you still afraid? Or where does it still feel too hard? There are little seeds of doubt. Can I really trust God? If it means less time or less money or less freedom, right? So how do, you, how do you go to those? What do you do? What do you do at those places in your life? And the answer here is in Genesis 9 is that you feast upon the sign. The rainbow is the sign of God's covenant promise so that every time you see it, it might jar you out of your forgetfulness and unbelief. What's marvelous about this morning is this meal that we now share together. This, this morning, this meal is a covenantal sign too. But it's a better one than the rainbow. And so feast upon this sign this morning at the places where you might say to him, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Let's pray. Holy Father, we would say that to you. Lord, we believe. Help our unbelief. So come now as we share this meal together. Work in our hearts, faith and love, uh, and bear fruit in us that might glorify you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, let me dismiss us with a benediction. Remind you that God sends us from this place. The benediction is a sending. He's sending us into the world as his people, the instruments by which he means to, to do this work of recreation. So as you go, in the places where it might be, you feel, you know, you might get shut down because it might be too hard or it might be too scary, Uh, Here is the benediction. So feast on the benediction. Set your heart's hope on these words. And and may they give you the strength that you need uh, to the places that God calls you. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. 
May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.